Loki Season 2 first reactions have arrived. We now know the Writers Guild terms that ended the strike. James Gunn confirms some returning players for the DCU, and Apple releases Flat Top Henry Cavill on the world. All that and more on this week's Multiverse News. Welcome to Multiverse News, your one-stop shop for information about all your favorite fictional universes. My name's Matthew Carroll, and with me on the panel today, we have Mr. Jay Sisson from Commute the Podcast. What's going on, Jay? Not too much. Just happy to be here, hanging in the multiverse. Ooh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And Haley Hobbs from Source Pages. What's happening, Haley? I'm happy to be back in the multiverse with Loki this week. Woohoo! Oh, me too. Me too, my friend. And Jay Scotty St. Clair from Animation Deliberation. What is happening, Jay Scotty? Hey, doing just peachy over here. We've gotten one of the two strikes figured out, so the proverbial news floodgates have opened, and it's exciting to be here to discuss it all. Right. Yeah, this week we've got a lot of, a lot of things to talk about. Um, well, we might as well turn right into that. Uh, first impressions for season two of Loki are hitting the internet with critics hailing it as some of the best MCU content in recent years, capitalizing off the success of season one and taking the characters and story to new heights. Critics have only been able to review the first four episodes of the series, but there is a great deal of optimism that this series delivers. Reviewers can also confirm that all six episodes are over 40 minutes in length. The pacing of the show is described as fast. Will that also describe how quickly we fall back into the world of the Time Variance Authority? (laughs) I think that we will if we're uh, lovers of the MCU like most of us on this show are. There have been some reviews that have maybe said that Kate Heron is missed. Kate was the director from the first season, but... I think that regardless of a few naysayers, the fact that most of these reactions to the screenings are super positive is just everything we all wanted and needed. I still haven't uh, seen any spoilers, so we still have really just no clue what we're getting into with Loki Season 2, and honestly, I think that's a service to it. I think that we're all kind of craving a little mystery and excitement, and I'm really looking forward to watching it this week. Yeah, to me, this seems like the show that, and season one did at least, seems like the show that it needed to exist for the service of the overall universe and the story that it was very much driving the overall narrative forward of the story of Mm -hmm. the general MCU, which not all of the series have done. And even some of the films haven't really totally felt like they've done. And so to me, that's the biggest appeal and draw of this show is that season one did so much for the grander narrative. And then we've just gone in a lot of different directions from there. To me, I'm sort of looking to season two to try to converge that a little bit again and try to get some of these things on the same page. And it seems like, at least from the reviews that I read, that it it attempts to do that. So Mm. uh, to me, that makes it exciting. But um, usually these reviews, you can trust them a little bit more. These are not like press screenings where people tend to skew very, very positive. Typically, people are pretty upfront about what they think when they review these first few episodes and they put social media reactions out there like if they're not crazy about it or if they're not crazy about the pacing they'll usually tell you uh and so for there to be so much just like man this show's awesome it's refreshing it's what we really needed and i'm so looking forward to these last two episodes i didn't get to see i just think it's a really really good sign yeah season one did is something that i'm really impressed with and it served as so much exposition for the multiverse while being 
also one of the most compelling dramas and action series that we've gotten. Like, it feels, you know, you're saying how it's important to the universe. And it's weird because you could have had all those other shows and movies, even the ones with the multiverse, without ever explaining what a variant is or showing the sacred timeline and showing splits and showing all this stuff. You could have had all that, but like, this show feels like almost like a rule book for the phase four and five of the MCU and the multiverse saga. And I'm hoping it continues to do that while still being like a really compelling character shit story. I'm normally not too precious when it comes to like early reviews and spoilers surrounding those, but I have been anticipating the series so much that more so than some other movies and, and series, I've really avoided reading any reviews whatsoever. So just the little snippets that we got um, in this article is all I've really been exposed to, but I think it makes sense because I, I think the fact that this is the first official like Disney plus property to get a sophomore season, I think that kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah. We're all looking forward to it. And yeah. And it's building off that first season, but it just shows how proven that first season really was that this is the first project to get that opportunity. And the little bits that I've read, like, it seems like Glowing reviews right across the board. Uh, Kiyu Kwan's Ouroboros, his new character, seems to be a standout. And even some of the ones that aren't so glowing, like it doesn't even seem like they've lost those people that may have nitpicks. They're not completely off board. Like I think I saw some stuff saying maybe there was too much product placement when it came to McDonald's. I think the other thing was that it kind of felt like more of a TVA, the show, rather than a, a Loki series. But I think that, that kind of makes sense with the amount of world building and heavy lifting that this series in particular has to do for the future of the MCU with this, you know, uh, crux of the multiverse and the and the story thrust going forward. So um, I'm, I, I love what I'm hearing about this, and uh, I can't wait until we get a chance to check this out in just a, just a day or two here. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure uh, all over the Trinity Panda Podcast Network we'll be doing things with it. I'm sure you guys are doing some over on source pages, yep, some sure. primers and such. Just dropped so. tonight, in fact. Nice. Well, check that out. And of course, on the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, we're going to be doing two episodes every week. We're going to be doing our instant reactions uh, right here on Twitch, where we stream live, uh, as well as uh, a feedback episode every week. So I'm just really excited. This was my favorite show of the entire phase four. So I'm just pumped to see more. Uh, it's exciting. Up next... The details of the WGA contract have been released, and we're not going to be able to break it all down here. But here are some of the highlights. Uh, we're going to take these a section at a time, sort of a mini uh, lightning round here. Uh, regarding the number of writers on a television or streaming project, at least three writer-producers must be hired on all series. The number of writers will rise on a sliding scale. A six-episode series must have at least three writers. A series with seven to 12 episodes must include five writers, and a series with 13 or more episodes calls for six writers. These minimum staffing requirements must be enforced unless a series is billed as a single writer series from the beginning. The contract also includes a minimum time of duration for employment for writer-producers. Development rooms must exist for a minimum of 20 weeks. Yeah, so I think it's important to say up front that none of us are lawyers <laughs> and <laughs> this is a this is an extremely complicated document. 
the legal disclaimer that we're not lawyers. <laughs> yeah, we're we are relying on the hard work of other people. Like we we read articles from people who explain these things. So so that should just be said, you know, that we're 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 doing our the best we can to explain it, but I think looking at some of these key things, there are some big takeaways here. This was a big sticking point of the whole strike in the first place was the cut down of writers' rooms to potentially a single person, maybe a single person and an AI. And this does give the opportunity for someone to pitch a a show that's written by just them. So if Dave Filoni says, I got a show, I've written it, I've made it, and I want it to be a single writer show, he does not have to bring on three writers, four writers, or whatever to make this show. So that's an important thing to note. But if it's sort of it sort of hits that middle ground where the studio can't necessarily just try to cut down the writer's room to a certain amount. It keeps the writer's room at a place where it seems like the guild is happy with. It seems like this was not necessarily a huge compromise on the guild's part, that they wanted a ton more writers. This seems to be sort of in that middle ground where they're a lot happier uh, than than uh, maybe we thought in terms of like what they got out of this, right? Uh, that this was a win uh, for the writer's side. But it's also uh, important to note that um, this only takes effect for series that begin in December of this year. And that includes series that are in their second and third seasons. So other series that have already started uh, or are ongoing, even if they haven't started writing their season two yet, this does not apply to them. So like think of any shows going on HBO right now or Disney plus any of the Marvel shows. If you want to make a season two of Miss Marvel, if you want to make a, you think about HBO, you want to make a season two of the last of us, you know, think about all these shows. They, they do not have to abide by these rules. Now, I would bet that the studios will probably be like, hey, we really want you to make this show. So, like, let's stick to the rules. But still, that's that's something just to keep in mind, too. Uh, and, you know, overall, I think, ultimately, this has the potential to affect the length of seasons. Uh, you think about, we've talked, a lot of people have talked mm. about how six-episode series, sometimes it's been a lot of a lot of talk around Marvel specifically, but six episode series maybe don't really have enough room to do the whole series thing uh, and to really explain characters and do what they're supposed to do, that they're teetering between that should be a movie or should be longer line. I think with a deal like this, you will probably see a lot more six episode series because it does allow a little bit extra money to stay off the books. You don't have to pay as many writers rather than uh, saying, hey, let's make this thing I mean, you're talking between six and seven episodes. That's a whole couple writers. So you, as from the from the studio standpoint, it makes sense to be like, you want to do seven episodes? How about you do six episodes? Uh, so mm. then I don't have to pay a couple extra writers for 20 weeks at least. So I think it's just a couple things just to take away from that. Yeah, anytime you have these imposed, I always think about these like rules like a board game designer. And I just think, see like the flaws in them and this kind of thing. Like, uh, I just think like, yeah, if you if you make a wide range like that, seven to 12 is a wide range. And so you can imagine them being like, well, let's get our most out of our writers. So it's like seasons will just be six or 12 right? and very, and, or, you know, once they're in 13, they might as well just keep going and do an 18 episode series. You know, it's kind of just this weird thing. Like it's, it, I think 13 is a weird thing because like, it's only one more writer, the 13 episodes uh, above the 12 only calls for one more writer. So it's not that big of a deal, I guess, but like so many shows were 13 episodes for a long time, but this does put that weird, like artificial stopping point at 12. It, it, yeah. Just, it's strange. Yeah. Um, strange to think about the unintended consequences of these kinds of ways of thinking about things and putting stopping points like that. And I also just see that like, unless it was planned to be a single 
writer series from the beginning as like a real big loophole. Like, like they could just go, Oh yeah, this is a single writer series. Uh, Bob's the writer. Like, you know, like it's just like not worrying as much about uh, following these rules. If you just claim it's a single writer series, kind of weird. So 13 reasons why I came out at the right time. Apparently (laughs) (laughs) was that a single writer series? No, just the 13 episode thing. Oh, right, right, right. Gotcha. Sorry. That's all good. <laughs> okay, up next on this uh, this here story, we have on the key issue of residuals, a new formula was agreed upon. Content made for streaming that is viewed by 20% or more of subscribers in the first 90 days of release will trigger bonuses for the writers for both series and films. Foreign residuals were also increased. Residuals for previously made shows that become streaming hits were also addressed and agreed to. Yeah, so this is a pretty big one. And I do think um, in terms of the, you know, what was negotiated, it's pretty straightforward, but I don't want to diminish how how big a win this actually is because streaming services have kind of historically been notoriously dodgy about revealing their viewership analytics. Mm-hmm. It was one of the, the big points of this whole strike, like how how do we compensate people, writers fairly, and this new landscape that streaming has kind of taken over. So I think it makes sense. Um, I will be interested to see exactly how that shakes out with some of these um, series that may not be exactly like runaway hits. Like um, I, I think we know when a show is a hit, even if they don't release the viewership numbers, like Wednesday comes to mind, and then like thinking about shows that retroactively become hits like Suits was such a big thing on Netflix here recently, but I am curious about maybe some of the ones that are more quietly successful, like what's, what kind of compensation that's going to look like. And I don't think this is going to solve the issue entirely. We may still see, you know, the occasional um, writer post that, that check of like, you know, a, a ridiculous like pennies on the dollar kind of check that they got mm-hmm. from some old show. But hopefully we see less and less of that with, uh, with this big win for the, the writer's strike or the writer's guild rather. Yeah, and this also, same thing, doesn't kick off until December. So, like, Mm -hmm. suits blowing up now, even with this new deal, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't fall into that category because it's it was made before this deadline. So, I almost think, like, there's a potential for an unattended consequence. And that's, like, if you've confirmed a show, like, it's in production. That's not just if it's made. So, like, I almost think we might see, like, a flurry of things try to go into production before <laughs> December. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, oh, let's get this right. out there real fast. So then it doesn't necessarily have to be under this like new residual thing or whatever. Right. Okay. Well, into production <laughs> can mean a lot of things too. Yeah. So right. I just keep thinking about all the many ways that corporate, uh, structures have been able to screw over artists forever. And like, I just see like big wide holes in these like negotiations that I'm like, Oh gosh, <laughs> like, uh, like, like the thing with the 20%, We've been talking a ton about merge purge and like how like these streaming services keep getting combining and getting bigger and bigger and like consolidating. The bigger a service is, the less likely you're going to be able to get 20%. You know what I mean? Like the more shows there are to watch, the more things that are going on, the more like more subscribers there are. And and also like, I, th- I feel like a lot of subscribers, I mean, sometimes, sometimes months I don't even turn on Netflix, you know what I mean? Or yeah. Hulu or like I'll be watching one particular show and not even know what's going on over on Netflix, you know, and later I'll hear, Oh, this movie was really good on Netflix and I'll go back maybe. But like, I mean, this, I feel like this is only going to apply to those shows like Wednesday, like you were saying that like that has a huge audience and it's everywhere. And that probably hit 20%, but I'm Mm -hmm. not even sure. It's just impossible to know too. And without the clarity of them sharing their numbers, 
Like, I also don't really buy the idea that they'll tell the truth. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. how do we know 20% of subscribers access the show if they're not We, we still the won't know the numbers either. The way that this right. deal is set up is they have their own board. They send the numbers to the board, I guess, to control leaks because there's like five or six people or something that like they're lawyers and accountants and they calculate the residuals and then they send that out. And that's part of the guild. So the guild sends the check to you for the residuals, not the studio. So they're still not, it's not out there. I mean, it's still protected information, but they've at least let the guild in on it. Right. I guess. Yeah. Again, I just like, I've just like come from like the music world where you hear about these, these you know, music studios and music houses like putting out albums and they sell a billion albums and the, the band makes like 20 grand or whatever because like the way the numbers were structured and they're like, oh yeah, we still took a loss on that album. And like, no, you sold millions and millions of copies, but you hired your own publicity arm and your own this arm and your own that arm. And you, it's just, they've always been able to work the numbers in a way to mess over artists. So like, yeah, I just keep seeing big holes in this, and I'm like, oh, I don't know mm. if they got this right, or like, uh, yeah, you know. We don't know every single detail either. These sure. are just sweeping yeah. headline things. Right. You would hope that we have confidence in them that they made good decisions on behalf yeah. of themselves. Sure. <laughs> One thing we know for a fact, too, is that the Writers Guild is happy with the deal. So I think that's yeah. something that needs to be mentioned, too. Like, writers yeah. walked away being like, we won. So yeah. I think we have to consider that, too. Yeah, and I mean, even if it's just the fact that they push the ball forward... They still push the ball forward. It's still better than the deal they had before. Yeah. So you can't really uh, say it's bad. Um, okay. Policies were established to govern the use of artificial intelligence, including that AI cannot be used to write or rewrite literary material and all use of it by writers or anyone else must be disclosed. Writers also reserve the right to assert that exploitation of writers' materials to train AI is prohibited. Yeah, so this was a big sticking point. Obviously, we talked a lot about it, how AI was in the conversation from the very beginning about uh, just central to the writer's strike. And the way that this is work has worked out, I do think is a win for the writers because of the way it's worded. It does, uh, the fear of writers was that they would write something, it would be paid by this hourly sort of rate to write something. They would only get one guaranteed draft. They would provide that spark of human inspiration. And then that draft would be sent off to an AI to basically rewrite and take it from there and do the bulk of the rest of the work that they would have gotten paid for after they had given the spark of inspiration. What this does is it layers it to where a writer has to be involved at every level, has to be involved at different levels of the draft. And if AI is ever brought into the conversation, it has to be disclosed. So if a writer wants to use it, they can, but they have to disclose it. If a studio hands something to a writer and says, hey, we want you to take a look at this and rewrite it, if it was written by AI, they have to disclose that. So all if it's an idea that was come up with by AI, they have to disclose that. So all of that has to be disclosed at every level. So I think that's why it's being looked at as a win, because it does get that out in the open. It doesn't have to be this sort of secret behind closed doors thing uh, mm-hmm. that we've we've kind of seen um, happen with that uh, in, in terms of how what it was talked about at least as potentially being now the stuff about using writers material to train AI there's still a couple of court cases that need to be decided uh, there's one with Sarah Silverman at the at the center yeah. where she sued chat GPT essentially for um, using her work to train an AI to write comedy sets 
And once those court cases get decided, I think we'll see a little bit more clarity on what that means. But we're really just in uncharted territory right now as far as like what is the artist's role in terms of contributing to the training of the AI. At this point, it's sort of like Pandora's box. Like if it gets if it gets ruled that you can't do that, I, you ca- kind of have to undo the entire thing because that's how it's learned up to this point is by consuming the internet. I mean, uh, did you see the news story that the uh, AI can now browse the internet? Like that came out, I think it was last week. Like AI is actively browsing the internet now. So that's how it's built. That's how it functions. You'd have to undo everything from the ground level and this recreate it, it so you know it's <laughs> yeah like ai is commenting on the twitch stream right now it's like i should be the only writer <laughs> like uh, all these other writers are stupid uh no but but ultimately like um yeah you've got you've got just this thing is laced in there but it's in a way to where i think the writers feel like they have a little bit of control over it at least which i guess is why it's skewed towards a positive well i it's, I think it's a temporary win for now because you think about for the sure. way like these yeah. AI models are trained, like instead of having to pour through like, you know, the vast volumes of everything on the internet, this like prevents them from saying, Hey, we want like a script that sounds like an Aaron Sorkin script. So they can't feed right, it like yeah. a data set of Aaron Sorkin specifically and say, Hey, write like this guy. So, um, I, I'm totally on board with you. It's, it's very nuanced and there's a lot to hash out, especially with chat GPT, because it's been like this open source free thing that's been out there for so many years and it's, it's, you know, technically not for profit at this point. So, um, I, I am curious to see how those court cases are going to shake out because I almost think it's like a case of like you have to hold the individual that used the chat GPT responsible rather than chat GPT itself. Like, yeah. Hmm. It's complicated. Up it next, uh, <laughs> up next here in the writer's guild deal, uh, the contract preserves the policy of ensuring that the vast majority of screenwriters will get a second step, meaning that they can be paid to do at least one rewrite of a draft screenplay. This was not one of the hot button issues we talked about a lot, but as I was going through it, I found this to be really compelling because when I read through the Variety article, which I've pulled up just so I don't misspeak, um, it reads a little bit like this was going to be for only original screenplays, but actually that was what the Producers Guild originally offered was that you could do the second step, but only for wholly original screenplays not projects derived from existing intellectual Mm. properties or reboots or remakes. And in this day and age, that's clearly problematic, and that's why the WGA had an issue with it. And so um, now these writers at least get two attempts on a screenplay, um, regardless of where it comes from. Um, It does say, a writer's hired for a first draft screenplay for 200% of minimum or less, including original and non-original screenplays. So. That applies to spec scripts um, purchased outside of development processes. So I think this is really cool because we didn't hear a lot about this. And you can imagine how many screenwriters were like writing something. It was just going in the trash because they weren't getting notes and getting like a second try to, you know, improve it or change it or whatever needed to be done. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to read more up on this one. I, I don't really fully understand like all scripts like even if before they reject it or accept it it gets a second step yeah i'm not i'm not sure about that yeah i think in the hollywood of yesteryear it was pretty normal to have at least a three or four step deal right yeah that's typically the stand the standard is like they they wrap up multiple steps within your 
original deal. Right. Um, so a pitch would be like, I've got a story idea, and then you would sign to like a multiple draft deal for a certain screenplay, and then you get paid at every level of that draft. Gotcha. So yeah. so this is if they've agreed to your pitch, then you get at least two yeah, steps. Yeah, the writer has right. to be hired. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, cool. Next on these uh, points, writers working in groups will receive pension and health contributions up to the relevant cap as though they were a single writer rather than splitting the applicable cap. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that it wasn't already like this, I guess. <laughs> um, essentially, what it means from the way that I read it, which I think I read it correctly, is that they would offer you pension and health benefits to a writer's room, but it was split among the writer's room, among different people. And depending on how many writers you had in there, it would divide it up even more. So this part of the deal guarantees that if you're in a writer's room, you get those benefits as if you are just an individual and you don't have to split them among other people in the room, <laughs> which seems like a as good thing. As if you're an individual, like, but that's how they were treating it. Like, oh, you're not one person. Let's so mess yeah, up, like, honestly. Yeah, like, oh, healthcare, uh, how about just the whole room? Y'all fight over it. <laughs> like, what, what sense does that make? We'll get Jerry's left arm and we'll get <laughs> yeah. Tom's right arm. Who wants teeth? Uh, yeah, who, who, who needs teeth? Who needs teeth? <laughs> okay, well, those are the basics of that deal. Like we said, that's not everything we could break down here. We couldn't break everything down here, but that is uh, some of the highlights um, and fun and interesting stuff. And it's interesting to see how all that will uh, continue to play out. Up next in our main stories here, we have James Gunn talking again. What? James Gunn took to threads last week to respond to fan questions about continuity in the new DCU and confirmed that three actors will continue to portray characters that they have played in the past, including Sholo Maraduena as Blue Beetle, Viola Davis as Amanda Waller, and John Cena as Peacemaker. He continued to say, quote, Yes, some actors will be playing characters they've played in other stories, and some plot points might be consistent with plot points from dozens of films, shows, and animated projects that have come from DC in the past, but nothing is canon until Creature Commandos and Superman Legacy. Does the return of these characters and their respective actors bode well for the future canon of the dcu or not well that remains to be seen but i for one am pretty excited with some of these casting confirmations and i'm a little bit of two minds on james gunn's comments because on i, I kind of love and hate it because on the one hand he's being very definitive in some regards it's like yes we know that blue beetle's coming back yes we know john cena's peacemaker's coming back yes we know viola davis are they're all coming back and they're going to be a part of the DCU. Nice to know that. But outside of that, everything else he's saying is like wishy-washy. It's just like, yeah, you know, some people played certain roles and they're going to continue those roles and maybe not those roles. And we'll find out when Creatures Commandos comes out. So it's like, uh, I mean, if James Gunn is going to be opening his mouth, at least it's good news like this for me, um, particularly John Cena's Peacemaker. I loved the Suicide Squad, and I loved him in it, and I, I really loved that season of Peacemaker. Um, I, I thought John Cena really got to shine in that role, and it was hilarious. So 
I think kind of the unexpected one here is Blue Beetle, especially given the kind of like soft return at the box office there. But it is encouraging knowing that Sholo or Sholo rather was kind of like the standout and the highlight of everybody's experience there. The fact that he's still going to be the afforded the opportunity to continue to portray this character um, in the DCU going forward certainly excites me. This quote is bullshit. Okay. <laughs> it's terrible. Terrible quote from James Gunn. Yet again, keep your mouth shut. I I just come on, man. Yeah, these guys are returning, but they're not necessarily who they were before. It's like you had your chance with the Flash movie to rewrite the universe. If you're going to pull a bunch of characters from the old universe, it's fine like you know, we had we can have people play legacy characters and come back as roles is in a different universe. It's fine. It just feels like why is he talking right now? And also, it seems terrible for Aquaman 2 that he's talking right now. Like, he not only just basically said it's a new universe, not even the people who are coming back are guaranteed to be the same characters, much less anything else you watch that's in the old universe. And Aquaman was not mentioned. So, like... This just really throws Aquaman under the bus. I feel like uh, more so, like they more so leaning towards uh, the bet here that uh, Jay might have the right idea. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the Aquaman two might do really poorly. I hope that his quote doesn't like do terrible damage to the Aquaman two. I hope it gets its chance to thrive if it's going to thrive. But uh, I just really think I mostly just think it's like really terrible that he's being so wishy washy. I wish he would just say like it's a new universe. And these guys, they're going to play the same characters, but we are starting over. So it's a new universe. Like this whole, like, it may be very similar to other characters they've played in other universes. It just, I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> this is the most James Gunn, James Gunn quote I've heard in a long time. <laughs> because it, there's one thing we know about him. He keeps his people. Like when he makes a movie with people... He keeps them mm-hmm. like in the next time, the next property. That's why, like all of his movies, the same people pop up all the time. He's extremely loyal to the talent that surrounds uh, surrounds him uh, in his movies. And so you do the math. It's like, well, John Cena makes sense. He made Peacemaker. Viola Davis makes sense. She was in Suicide Squad and Peacemaker. He made mm-hmm. those. That makes sense too. Uh, and then we look at Blue Beetle. He he stood on the table for that movie, so he has to carry that movie into the new DCU. Like he pushed too hard for it. To be a part of the DCU, that has to happen. Uh, he's just on record too much about that. Uh, no matter how bad it did at the box office, and so <laughs> now you're looking at you're looking at this thing, and it's like, well, okay, now you threw all the other characters out and it's like, you know, and people were mad about that. And, but we're going to keep some actually, but the justification has always been, well, we don't want Cavill cause it's a new universe. We don't want Gal cause it's a new universe, but Peacemaker, like, you know, it's like, so I don't know. It's just kind of like, it's a weird look. And, and I think mm-hmm. Matt, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I think you can, you can approach the, I, I got no problem with bringing people. You want to bring people in to play roles that you feel like they're cut out for. I got no problem with that. But I think when you start trying to do the canon thing and you start trying to be like, well, it's like, we're going to ignore this and we're going to keep this people just they're out like they're tired of that stuff they're tired of that like disconjointed <laughs> connection like maybe they maybe they are maybe they aren't type stuff and it's just people are going to be this is why this type of stuff frustrates people uh mm-hmm. especially like dc fans specifically just get frustrated by stuff like this because that lack of consistency just drives them absolutely crazy because the whole point of this whole thing is canon and connectivity and 
uh, characters sharing a universe together. So it's just you know we're we're not done with these quotes either. By the way, like these quotes are going to continue. I mean, it's just right. going to happen. Like this is kind of this is how he he does things. He he likes threads. Right, and it doesn't <laughs> have to be if he wants his movie to not care about the canon he like i said he could say this is a new canon or he could do the joker thing and just make a bunch of disparate movies that are cool and based on dc characters and you see some through lines you just see other movies don't seem to line up whatever it doesn't really matter they're all separate movies but he wants the dc wants to cash in on the idea of a universe but they've not been able to cobble one together and they've not been able to cavil one together and it's just it's just they just want to like have their cake and eat it too and do whatever they want. And they want to keep changing their plan, but also maintain the idea that they're a universe. And I'm just saying it. They're not. DC is not a universe. <laughs> oh, I don't have anything to say about this. <laughs> <laughs> We're serving up yeah. James Gunn on a platter. And Haley's like, pass. <laughs> I'm done with it. Like, I don't Yeah, care. <laughs> no, I get it. Like, as I was putting this in the news, I was like, I hate myself for putting this story about James Gunn in here, talking about DCU again. Like, let's just get this thing started. But Superman Legacy is in 2025, so, like, <laughs> these conversations are just beginning. Wow. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we'll have more to talk about when Creatures Commandos comes out. That's true. That's Indeed. true. I forgot Indeed. about that one. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break and be right back. Don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. The show's not over. I know we haven't been taking ad breaks in the middle, but we're doing it now. Don't worry. We'll be right back. All right. We're back. And next in the news, we have Apple. I'm, I'm excited about this one, guys. I really am. Apple has released the first trailer for Argyle, a spy drama from director Matthew Vaughn. The all-star cast includes Henry Cavill, Dua Lipa, Bryce Dallas Howard, Sam Rockwell, Brian Cranston, Catherine O'Hara, John Cena, Arena DeBose, and Samuel L. Jackson. With a premise that promises to keep you guessing, the film will hit theaters on February 2nd, 2024, and will debut on Apple TV Plus at a later date. Is this Apple's biggest swing yet? If you haven't watched this trailer, go watch it. It's really interesting. Like it's got it sets up the intrigue of the movie really well. Henry Cavill is looking really interesting with that flat top haircut, and uh, and uh, it's just the cast is stacked. I mean, you just read the list; like that speaks for itself. It's a stacked cast, and it seems like just from the trailer, which is a limited look, but it seems like these actors and actresses are having a lot of fun. They're plugged into roles that they're really owning. It's got got this weird blend of like spy thriller with sort of it's got this like literary angle of characters in a book and uh, Bryce Dallas Howard plays this author who's writing this spy series and then you've got the spy series sort of happening uh, within the movie itself as well so it's a really it seems really interesting like like from a conceptual standpoint and I'm just really intrigued by it. I think this is a, I'm seeing ads for it everywhere. So Apple's really pushing it out there. They're really pushing that like Henry Cavill do a leap a dance scene. Like I feel like I see that every time I <laughs> scroll like <laughs> three scrolls, I like see it again. So uh, yeah, but it's, it looks really interesting. I'm definitely intrigued. It's real quirky and it's bringing in a lot of funny vibes. So like I watch it and I get Knives Out and The Man from Uncle and yeah. Miami Vice. Like, it's mm-hmm. super just drawing on all these very random and disparate genres, but bringing them together. And I think that's why it looks fun. Um, and it it's making me think, like, this is Apple taking a really big swing to try to, I think, really launch their streaming service up another tier. Because more and more people are 
becoming aware of all of the media that they're putting out and really enjoying a lot of it. And this is just kind of like, you like that? We've got this movie coming out with this ridiculous cast that we think you're going to like too. It also has kind of Last Night in Soho vibes. It's just crazy. Mm. But that's Matthew Vaughn. And I that's what I like about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love Matthew Vaughn. And his directing style is really interesting. And the Kings of Movies are so like over the top action spy thriller, which like this is, but it looks like that mixed with adaptation. Like it's that weird like thing of like part of the story is in reality and part of it's not. And sort of what is the line between reality and fiction? And it just looks like it's just really, really cool and well done. Um, and I love the idea of this like over the top action sequences and dance sequences like they have in the Kingsman and movies like that, that Matthew Vaughn's so good at. I love the idea of them, them being in the fictional world. You know what I mean? Like it just kind of gives them license to do even more ridiculous stuff because it's, that's the fiction of it. And then, but also grounding it in this real world with Sam Rockwell, like Sam Rockwell <laughs> is the goat and I, I love him so much. And if he is any indication, I'm guessing he will have a mirrored dance scene that mirrors what happens in that uh, Cavill scene. I'm guessing that the real world dance scene will be Sam Rockwell and maybe Bryce Dallas Howard. Um, and it will be awkward and it will be fun. I'm excited. It looks really, really great. Yeah, there was a movie that came out last year called The Lost City with Sandra Bullock and Daniel Radcliffe and Channing Tatum. And conceptually, I was immediately like put in mind of that movie when seeing this trailer. And I guess my hope is that... Um, they that Henry Cavill is a main character and his character of Argyle like we get to see him throughout this movie and it's not just kind of like a throwaway bit at the beginning and they pull the rug out from under us it's like oh we set up this world of Argyle but you're going to spend the whole time with the author and Sam Rockwell but I'm with you 100% Matt Sam Rockwell excellent character actor one of my favorite character actors but Hollywood give him more leading roles he deserves Mm -hmm. it he's he's so capable of it outside of that yeah I I kind of agree with everything that's been brought up Uh, I really do like Matthew Vaughn as a director he has this um, style of shooting action that's really like snappy and kind of punchy that I think really excites me for the uh, the level of action that we're going to get here and Dua Lipa, she's been, you know, making the transition to to films. She showed up in uh, this summer's blockbuster Barbie, and I'm, I'm, she looks like a great femme fatale. And with John hope- Cena. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they had a scene together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I kind of hope that she is included on the soundtrack for this one because every time she puts out a new jam, like it's it's so catchy. She's got the, like that new age disco thing going so well. I really like one of the jokes and that, that it isn't really focused on in the trailer, I feel like, but it, I feel like it's going to definitely be part of the movie, which is these are the real versions of the characters you're writing. And they're all like, just not, they're intentionally making them kind of less attractive, which I think is very funny. Sure. It's like, because in the, in the spy <laughs> genre, everyone's so beautiful and they don't even play this joke in the trailer, but they kind of ruin the joke. The first, it, sh- it shows her meeting Samuel Jackson's character and he has uh-huh. this hat on and he looks like cool Samuel Jackson, but later you see him without the hat on and he has this weird sprigs of hair that are clearly <laughs> meant to like not look good. And okay. it's just kind of funny. You know, at some point you're going to be like, yeah, I'm Samuel Jackson. I'm the cool mf and then he takes off the hat and it's like ooh, yikes uh but then sam rockwell starts with that humongous beard in the same vein just like they they just like are not the clean cut henry cavill spy you know mm-hmm. i will say this movie is coming out in february which seems to be kind of a favored spot for matthew vaughn he's put out a few movies in february but they have got to work on the cgi for the cat 
during that time, <laughs> I was getting <laughs> really taken out by that that cat yeah. CGI. It's not great. <laughs> oh, dude, this this movie's gonna kill because it's gonna get male and female audiences excited uh, because I think the angle of the movie and the silliness of it and the over the top nature, like I think it's really going to uh, get both audiences, and it's gonna be a perfect. Uh, Valentine's Day movie. It'll get a little bit of buzz the first yeah. two weekends, and then Valentine's Day is gonna it's gonna kill. Mm-hmm. All right, up next, the trailer for Walt Disney Animation's upcoming movie, Wish. Uh, you have to say it like that. That's how it's said in the trailer. <laughs> Wish. Um, just kidding. Sorry, I don't know what I'm doing. Wish became the studio's <laughs> biggest trailer since the release of promotional spots for Frozen Two in 2019. The spot earned 66.5 million views across online platforms, according to the company. It surpassed the teaser trailer, which was released in April by almost 20 million views and has quickly become the most viewed Disney trailer on TikTok to date. Wish will debut in theaters on November 22nd and is turning into a spotlight for Disney's centennial celebration of the company. The entertainment giant has been under a bit of fire recently. Does Wish have what it takes to douse the flames? I think Wish looks fantastic. I think that it evokes all of the classic Disney animated movie elements that we all grew up with that we love. And it's also tagging on the success of Frozen, which another generation of people love, um, that they were small when those movies came out. And those were kind of groundbreaking movies at the time for Disney. And they, they really captured audiences. And it's interesting that this trailer is doing so well after Frozen 2's trailer because um, the same writer is on, I believe it's the same writer. Yeah, hmm. Jennifer Lee on both of those films. Um, and so it just, it's just, I think it's magical. I remember when the teaser came out and I, I sent it to Zuhair, Scotty's co-host. I don't remember if I sent it to you, Scotty. But I, I was like, so. you guys should cover this. Like, this is, this looks like really special to me. And um, if you don't know, it is Disney's 100th anniversary this year. And so they tout this as a story 100 years in the making, and I think that that's just a, a nod to Disney Centennial. Um, but it's kind of bringing all of our Disney princess movies and animated movies and the specialness of those together um, to connect it to Argyle. It stars Ariana DeBose, <laughs> who's going to be in that movie as well. Um, she's a Broadway actress. She's on TV. She was in Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. We have Chris Pine. She asked, yeah, she wanted Oscar. She's got a, a beautiful voice. I really love her. Chris Pine is the king. We've got Alan Tudyk because you can't make an animated movie without Alan Tudyk. <laughs> <laughs> Victor Garber, um, who's an actor that I really love, is going to be. So it's got a great Evan Peters. It's got a great cast. And I think that it's going to be just something really unique and new that Disney needed. And I do think this will do really well in the theaters. I'll start by addressing the Disney centennial of it all. And I have to say, I'm. Kind of impressed by Disney's restraint, especially compared to AMC. They've been doing their 100 years of AMC for like the last three years. That I'm so sick and tired of seeing that Nicole Kidman intro. We come here for magic. Yeah, I get it. It's been three years. Give it a rest. Uh, but anyway, no, I, I'm right on board with you, Haley. Um, I, I really enjoyed this trailer. The art style was definitely the, the thing that stuck out to me. I really do feel like it's all throwback to the classic age of like golden age of animation for Disney, um, as well as like hearkening to this like new 3D rendered style. And the thing that really stuck out to me about it is it really feels like it's like there's a texture 
to the animation. Like it feels like it's on like a, a canvas or like a mosaic or like a tapestry. So like you really get to see this, this texture as like these 3d characters kind of float across it. Um, apart from that, I'm super excited for Alan Tudyk, his little character, the goat Valentino, because like, as soon as that character spoke, I was like, Oh, who's doing that voice. I recognize that voice. And knee jerk reaction was Patrick Stewart. But then I was like, no, it's talent Alan Tudyk. And he's doing the exact <laughs> same voice he uses for Clayface on the Harley Quinn show. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it looks really good. Uh, Chris Pine, I'm kind of surprised that he hasn't had the opportunity to voice a Disney character yet. But uh, this character of Magnifico, I have kind of high hopes that he's going to not be too mustache twirly. It seems like he has some um, some complications and some motivations there that I think will be explored and make him that much more satisfying of a villain. But with the name Magnifico... Uh, it does make me think of Fairly Odd Parents. Shout out to my '90s kid, Nick, Nicktoon Kids. There was a character on that <laughs> show called Magnifico. One, uh, what was it? Wandifico Magnifico. So, if I was Butch Hartman, I might start to uh, contact Disney about some copyright infringement potentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Disney needs a few like this. Uh, they're they're starting to get to the point where they're they're hitting the twos and threes like frozen three is in the pipeline and it'll do well of course i mean it's got a huge fan base uh but you're hitting that you're also seeing the remakes happen and they're to varying levels of degrees of success and uh to get a new ip that people can buy into especially these like disney princess ips when they hit they hit really hard uh and they create fan bases that last for over a decade and they continue to just draw people into more properties within disney they get sequels they get albums they get all these things going. The theme parks start to profit from it. So they, they need some stuff like this uh, if they're going to pull themselves. They're in kind of a hole right now uh, from a financial standpoint. So, um, But yeah, I, I agree with you guys. I think this trailer, it, it definitely captures the magic that I think people look for when they watch a film like this. And um, I'm, I'm in on that, an, that animation style. Like you guys said, I, I think it's really interesting. It's unique. And um, it sells the film as its own unique thing, which uh, I think is exciting. Yeah. And you guys both mentioned that it's sort of like its own thing, and it has that line about a hundred years of in the making. Uh, what I found interesting, very the moment I saw the trailer and they're zooming down towards the castle, I was like, that looks like the style of castle from Disney World. You know, like it mm -hmm. looks very similar in style, and it's not. It's just, I'm not a Disney fanboy enough to know if it's exactly Cinderella's the same. And, castle, I think, yeah. is what it's supposed to be, right? Yes, yes, um, that's right. And so it just looks very similar in style. And then as the trailer went on, there's also a moment where it happens very fast, but you see um, a group of animals that are animated almost exactly like the Bambi group of animals. And then a little bit later in the in the trailer, she wishes upon a star. And that seems to be the main thrust of the movie is that she has the power to wish on a star. So, uh, and there's some sort of little star character. It just feels like they're trying to make Disney the movie. Like they're really going for mm -hmm. like grabbing these sort of disparate elements from around Disney's history and sort of coalescing them into a movie. And uh, I just think that's kind of neat. Uh, yeah. It's kind of fun. And if they do it right, I, it could be a really cheesy thing to do if they overdo it or if they do too many things. But like, um, yeah, I, I think they've, they've, seems like they've stricken a balance of like really trying to make a good individual plot in itself. And also, I noticed there's a little bit of a social commentary already in the trailer about these wishes that Magnifico can give and how he gets to decide whether people's wishes, he's the one with power. And so he gets to decide whether people's wishes are good for the, the overall community or whatever he says. For the greater good. 
for the greater the good, exactly. Mm-hmm. The kingdom, yeah. So he gets to decide as the powerful one whose wishes matter and and whose wishes are good for everyone and whose mm-hmm. wishes he gets to ignore. And that's that that clearly they're going to try for something powerful there with a real social commentary, which honestly Disney doesn't always do. <laughs> Disney sort of steers clear of a lot of that, like sort of. Uh, political social commentary thing really let more so lately but like i, I I'm, I'm here for it I well i think it. that's where jennifer lee comes in she took the frozen stories and she twisted the snow queen mm-hmm. that they're based on and she made them about mental health and that was something that disney absolutely had not done before and those movies are so popular whether you hate them or whatever you know they are extremely popular with uh with a population of people and so i think she's a great breath of fresh air to write this movie as well she's mm. married to um who's the actor that plays doc ock in the spider-man movies alfred molina alfred molina she's yeah. married to alfred molina mm. fun fact i watch a lot of behind the scenes <laughs> things on disney <laughs> <laughs> love it uh, uh next we got up is our spotify poll for this week um we asked how do you feel about baths how does our audience, our very specific audience, how do I the apologize. pandas feel about baths? I love it. I love it, and I love how very divided you are about baths. <laughs> because we have um, 12% of you say they are disgusting. Mm. 36% of you say they are only for children and dogs. I voted for that one. I did too. That was, that was, I contributed. <laughs> 49% of you. The winner, the winner, says perfect way to relax. Uh, I'm with you guys. And then one percent, which I did the math, (laughs) breaks down to one person. Says it's how they get they clean their body. Uh, No judgment. No judgment. You you know what's best for you. At least you're cleaning your body. We love like what they're like. What gives, guys? Like come on now. Like this is just a thing that I do. Why has it got to be a problem? (laughs) That's one of those children that listens. (laughs) <laughs> it was a dog, actually. Yeah, um. it, was, it was an AI dog. <laughs> the Saw Patrol dog. <laughs> oh, the Saw Patrol. Did you guys see there was an article talking about Saw Patrol that somebody posted on uh, the Stranded Panda Chat today? No. Mm-mm. So there was an article from some other source that said, like, Saw Patrol, and it had a picture of one of the patrol dogs with the Saw thing, and it... <laughs> Like Not straight up had a, it was an article about Saw Patrol and how it did well, but it's going to face struggles this week against some other movie. Hey, we were talking about that like two months ago. We yeah. definitely they're, made they're that up to start here. I found it. Dextero is the website. I've never heard of that. I haven't Saw either. Patrol set for box office fight against the creator. And they <laughs> have this crazy? very menacing picture of a Paw Patrol puppy. <laughs> Yeah, That's amazing. We, you that, totally that, ripped us off, Dextero. We Dextero, right in. Cut the check, baby. Tell us if you know us. That's really Those funny. Those residuals, though. <laughs> we want numbers over here. <laughs> I just love that they. the headline is just Saw Patrol like it's a thing. Like, I, I don't know if it's a thing anywhere but this show and that article. And I just love that they wrote the article. I'm just like, dude. Saw Patrol. Great. Saw Patrol as coined by the Multiverse Guardian News. used Saw Patrol. <laughs> Know your meme, Saw Patrol. Is that the one you made? I don't know. Who's winning the Saw Patrol box office? Vulture. Oh my gosh. Vulture used it. 
Wait, well, Reddit says has a thread, Regal, low-key, trying to make Saw Patrol a thing. Ha, ha, ha. Okay, a Gen Zer <laughs> wrote that, first of all. A Gen Zer wrote that. Oh, Those videos it. are making it on, into my algorithm, and it's warping <laughs> my brain. Oh, my gosh. I love this Like, somebody's Patrol sticking happened. up a subway, and the person's like, not you in your thief era, boo. And I'm like, what am I watching right now? <laughs> oh, I'll send it to you guys. It can be in your algorithm, too. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about, Haley. Oh, you'll find out. Please send it. Please send it. I'll put it in the show notes (laughs) (laughs) to ruin everyone's algorithm. I do love a good unhinged poll, though. I got to say. Like, you know, a lot of times we're like, hey, which cast do you think is good for Fantastic Four? And then sometimes it's like, y'all like bats? (laughs) You know, like, yeah. It's you. What do you come to this show for? Come on. If if you're stuck, if you stuck with us this long, like, just you're here for a reason. I mean, yeah, our Spotify poll has slowly become our <laughs> silliest segment, but um, it is worth noting that 73 people responded with their opinions about baths. I love it. Two of them were me and J-Lo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to subtract two. <laughs> My whole point, though, is I love how divided down the middle it is because they're disgusting and, and then they're only for children and dogs is half. And then perfect way to relax, and it's the only way I clean my body, is half. Like, 50% <laughs> is positive, and 50% is very negative. Like, I love that Baths it's just, like... are very polarizing. <laughs> very polarizing. Yeah. Hard-hitting stuff here. It is. It is. We're, this This could be the next... Man, if this, if this hits the internet, and it's the next, like, which way do you put the toilet paper roll, then we know that somebody out there in the journalists are listening to us. <laughs> well, I think Saw Patrol is absolutely a... We did that. Like, we did it. That's we, absolutely from us. We definitely made it up on the spot, but it's just funny that it's out there. And we, it was like two or three months ago. It was crazy. Well, we're going to get to the lightning round. And so do not go away. Do not go. We will be right back with the lightning round. Some cool stuff in there after this. All right. Welcome back to Multiverse News. Let's hit this lightning round. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Woo! Audience, are you ready? <laughs> okay okay some some people decided to mock you basically audience they mocked you is what the hosts did um but no uh, you guys know what the lightning round is <laughs> i'm gonna say a story and only one person gets to respond to each story one and you do that you claim a story by buzzing in by saying your name and then uh and then if, if you like you have one rebuttal to a response throughout the entire uh lightning round so here we go Netflix has released first looks at several of its upcoming animated projects, including a teaser for Tomb Raider, The Legend of Lara Croft, which will star Haley Atwell as Lara Croft, a brief teaser for the upcoming Devil May Cry anime adaptation, and a look at Logan and Blade Runner 2049 co-writer Michael Green's new adult animated series, Blue Eye Samurai. Scotty. So Netflix is not normally one of my streaming services that I include in my rotation, but uh, given the number of animated properties that are coming out and the quality that they seem to be, I might have to be persuaded to uh, indulge again, at least for a little while. Um, I will say in terms of like the animation style, the Devil May Cry one was the one that kind of caught my eye the most, which is interesting because I think it's the most kind of traditional and straightforward in terms of it just be kind of being a um, modern take on the the classic anime style. Uh, Blue-Eyed Samurai, that one definitely 
gets my attention as well just with the talent involved with uh, the writer of Blade Runner 2049, one of my favorite films of all time. But mm. I, I did find a weird disconnect with that one. Like the animation style is absolutely beautiful, but I felt like it didn't fit the action very well. Um, so, you know, judgment still reserved. I'll wait to see what the final product looks like, but it definitely seems interesting in, in concept alone. And uh, Laura Croft, Haley Atwell seems like a perfect Laura Croft. And uh, I love Tomb Raider. so. Bring it on. Absolutely. Irish-English veteran screen and stage actor Michael Gambone died September 28th at the age of 82. Though many will certainly recognize Gambone for his lauded portrayal of Albus Dumbledore in the Harry Potter movies after replacing the late Richard Harris during his 60-year career, Gambone has received three Olivier Awards, two SAG Awards, and four BAFTA Awards. He was knighted in 1999 for his services to drama. Haley, uh, I love Michael Gambon from so many other things, including uh, Gosford Park, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And for Jay, he was a voice in Paddington, or he was in Paddington. So, you know, we have to throw <laughs> that out there. Um, hey, I know a lot coming. of our audience knows him from uh harry potter but things like the hollow crown and just a lot of fantastic mr fox like life aquatic with steve Z- zisu like he just an incredible resume and um it's really sad that he's gone mm, absolutely on friday netflix announced that it has mailed its last dvd the first dvd it shipped in 1998 was a copy of tim burton's beetlejuice the final envelope contained a dvd copy of the 2010 film true grit directed by joel and ethan cohen jay uh i love this <laughs> just as like an idea um a relic of the past uh it reminds me of the last blockbuster that exists uh and that idea of the nostalgia of renting movies and getting movies in the mail which was a whole era that is just lost and so for uh for this to to be the way it ends uh true grit you know i mean i think it's just a fitting and kind of cool uh cool end to a really interesting era that i think all of us were defined Find by in some way of of in the way that we grew to love movies. I know all of us are movie lovers, and we existed in that era where we had to rent them. We had to go rent them from a store. We had to order them from the mail. So I think it's just a you know I often don't get uh, too nostalgic for the past, but I think it's important to pause on this one and just reflect back on the journey you came on to become a film lover here. Mm-hmm. And I'll I'll, I'll rub- uh, give a little rebuttal to that. I just. I think it's so cool uh, to hear that this was still going on and that, like, it does. It has this weird, like, place in my brain of, like, when that started being a thing and how cool it was. Like, oh, a few bucks a month and you could just get a, as many DVDs as you can send back. They'll just keep sending them to you. And I'm like, that's so cool. I used to, uh, I used to get all these star, I remember I did a, all of Stargate this way. I did all of Stargate through, uh, um, 10 seasons of that show just sending a dvd back at a time and i think it had buffy at some point this way too so yeah it's just good times lots of good memories of those little uh dvd envelopes with a deal in place with the writers guild studios have begun taking aim at setting writers for their open assignments sources tell deadline that marvel studios will start setting writers meetings later this fall for pitches on its anticipated x-men movie Insiders add there is no rush to fill the job since the film does not have a release date yet, 
and it's more than likely that a writer decision will be made at the beginning of 2024. Marvel declined to comment. Because they're not James Gunn. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Haley. Uh, (laughs) um, I I think that I will be correct about it taking at least 10 years for us to get an X-Men movie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) Yep. It's looking like it. People said I was crazy, and I was like, that's a huge franchise to tackle. Like, they got to do it right. It's kind of Kevin Feige's baby a little bit, too. I guess this is my mm, rebuttal. Mm, uh, no it, it's, it's kind of Kevin Feige's baby. I mean, he was on board with all of those X-Men movies. Like, that's yeah. where he got his start in Hollywood. That That's where it all happened for him. So, he's a big X-Men guy. We already kind of know that a lot of those characters are coming around in Deadpool 3, and who knows what happens to them in that movie. But eventually, yeah, you're going to have to bring in these new characters at some point. So, yeah, I mean, you've Deadpool 3 is still a year away, and this writer is just talking about coming in and pitching. Like, I mean, yeah, it seems like an accurate prediction to me. It's still a while off. Mm-hmm. I don't get those very often. <laughs> <laughs> Paw Patrol, the Mighty movie, took the number one spot at the American domestic box office this weekend with a solid $23 million opening, beating out Saw 10, or Saw X, uh, which took $18 million. The Creator, which hauled in $14 million, and Dumb Money, which flopped at $3.5 million. Scotty. Um, I don't want to take anything away from Paw Patrol, but I do want to come out as kind of a defender to dumb money. Uh, the way it just suggests that it flopped and like 3.5 million on its wide release is not great. It's pretty abysmal, but it is worth mentioning that this movie has had a slow rollout to wide release. So I know I saw it a good three weeks ago and I do think um, it was available in some like larger markets and the people that were really, you know, itching to see that one, they already went out and saw it and they might've gone to see one of these other films, but I, I, you know, I do look at the creator as well. And that was one that we had some high hopes for, especially it being an original IP, a, uh, a return for Gareth Edwards, who hasn't directed anything since, uh, 2016's rogue one. And, uh, the fact that it was, you know, made on an $80 million budget was hoping to see a nice return on that and prove to Hollywood that we do want to see, you know, new, interesting concepts in the world of sci-fi. So, uh, you know, Maybe this will be one where the word of mouth helps support it over the uh, the coming weeks as there's not as much content coming out. But uh, kudos to Paw Patrol. And, uh, you know, I think the Saw franchise has uh, at least guaranteed a, another sequel before too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's this is a tiny butt. But, yeah, you mentioned $80 million budget for the creator. Saw X, $13 million budget. Paw Patrol, $30 million budget. So, you know, it's just Mm. one of those things like... (laughs) That animation, though. (laughs) Yeah, like, I mean, and Paw Patrol will continue to grow, by the way. Like, I'm a parent, and any parent listening to this is like, well, yeah, of course it is, because, like, every kid is completely obsessed, like, mindlessly obsessed Are you going to do it for multiverse reviews? I I will see it. (laughs) I have to see it, because I have three kids, and they all want to see it. So I will see it. If anybody wants that review, you just let me know. I'll serve it up (laughs) on a platter uh, by myself in front of a mic. (laughs) but i want it yeah i want it too that will continue to climb it just i mean because you know how families are like they're not they don't care about opening weekend they'll go two three weeks four weeks down the road and just see it whenever so that i I wouldn't be surprised if that just kind of keeps chipping away like you just keep talking about it's like oh another 20 another 20 another 20 and it Mm -hmm. just kind of keeps keeps rolling Mm -hmm. 
Well, on the subject of reviews and the creator, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Multiverse Reviews did put out our first review earlier this mm-hmm. week yes. with Matthew Carroll and myself reviewing the creator. So go check that out on the feed. Yeah, yeah. Right before this episode uh, in the feed, there should be a uh, review of the creator. And uh, yeah, it was a great time. Really, really good time. We had mixed feelings about it, but uh, not to spoil too much. But uh, we, yeah. Check it out. Check it out. Also, we do a non-spoiler section at the beginning. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, is because oh. I listen to the non-spoiler because I haven't seen it yet. So if you're kind of like, I don't know if I want to see this, go listen to that first part first, and then you won't get anything spoiled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We try to. We'll, we'll be doing that on all of our future multiverse reviews episodes that we'll be dropping when, when something seems relevant to what we're what we do here at Multiverse News. SAG-AFTRA and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers met Monday for the first contract talks since July 14th, hopefully a sign of some movement towards the end of the actor strike. Haley? Yeah. Woo! <laughs> Woo! Yeah, movement. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> this gives a nice springboard, you know, where we got, we got some stuff going now. That's, that's yeah, good. We, we're, that's good news. It's moving. You can do it. We have an entertainment news show and TV and movies can finally start being made again. This feels good. Um, <laughs> Among other discourse about November's MCU entry, The Marvels, AMC Theaters released the movie's runtime late last week at 1 hour and 45 minutes. The Marvels will be the shortest movie to join the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This runtime joins Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness and Thor Love and Thunder as recent MCU entries under or right at 2 hours. Um, Matt, I'll talk about this one. Uh, I uh, really don't mind if it's a little shorter. Uh, it, it's weird that they're making things shorter and shorter, and we, we've had a lot of discourse about that with the uh, TV series, how some episodes, just series, the, the shows seem to get shorter and shorter as the series go on. Um, but I, uh, I don't mind if a movie is short, as long as it's good. And maybe this seems like the kind of tone that could fit an under two hour movie. I don't mind movies being under two hours at all. Um, but I hope it doesn't like bode towards a big shift away from like them being willing to give resources to the MCU to make those longer movies when they, when they want to or need to for the story. Um, I, I think they, they've had some long ones not do well. And so I think they're trying to, you know, see if they can get a, a tighter package going, which, could be great. Could be great. Tiny bite. Scotty with a rebuttal. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I stand by that it might suffer the same problem as Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, and that it's going to rely heavily on things that have come before, and some people will not have seen them. Mm. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah. I'll chime in with a quick rebuttal as well. And uh, I wasn't here on a previous week where we talked about the speculation that it might be like an hour and 30. So to hear that it's actually an hour and 45 certainly sounds better than an hour 30. And do I think that, you know, Marvel could make a completely compelling and, and movie that's functional and works with an hour and 45 minute runtime? Sure. I I'd never go into movies, you know, um, demanding a certain amount of runtime. It's just do they tell the story that they wanted to tell and do they do it effectively and they, do they make me feel something? So that in sense, so in that sense, like um, some of the comparisons that are being made here, like Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness, like I love that movie, but that is one of those movies where it felt kind of rushed. And I think it really would have benefited from just an additional 15 minutes. So to hear that we're not, instead of getting that 15 minute padding, we're losing that 15 minutes. 
does mm. concern me slightly just because we are focusing on three title characters here. Like I think about previous superhero movies that have been around an hour and 45 minutes. And the first one that comes to mind is the original Deadpool, which an hour and 45 minutes worked perfectly for that, but it was only focusing on the one title character. This one we have Brie Larson returning as, you know, Carol Danvers. We've got Monica Rambeau and we've got um, Kamala Khan to, you know, both, introduce those characters to people that didn't watch the Disney plus series plus make them have a compelling character journey that we care about. That's it's a tall order. Mm, it's a good point. I hadn't really considered that, that it's such a short one and it's introducing two characters that most audience won't know. And Carol Danvers uh, has just not, it, it feels like a long time since the first Captain Marvel. It feels mm. like it's been a long time. Oh, yeah. I know she's appeared in a couple others, but she has not been a central character in another movie since then. And it just feels like it's been a while. So it's, yeah, that's, that's, that is a little worrying that audiences just won't be able to catch on to these characters like they should. But the movie looks so much fun. Uh, next, Only Murders in the Building has been renewed for a fourth season by Hulu. Haley. Yay. <laughs> I love Only Murders. <laughs> so this is awesome. Sweet. Also, there was like a spinoff show that Kaylee Cuoco was going to do that was oh. kind of this. I forget which streaming service. And I was like, mm, mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, it was literally like, we're solving murders and we have a podcast. And I was like, gee, I wonder where they got that idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean a ripoff show? Like not, not uh, a spinoff? Yeah, yeah not yeah. spinoff. Uh, okay, ripoff. gotcha. <laughs> Sorry, gotcha. No, no, you're fine. I was like, spinoff? That's weird. I didn't hear not anything about spin-off. that. That's I'm funny. tired. We've been on here a long time. <laughs> <laughs> last, last thing in the uh, lighting around here. The first three episodes of Amazon's The Boys spinoff, Gen V, are now available to stream on Prime Video, with the remainder of the eight-episode season premiering on Fridays through November 3rd. Matt, um, I saw the first episode. haven't seen all three yet. Um, and it was... I. Gave this a lot of shit when we saw the trailers. Um, I thought it was looked like CW. Um, I still don't think it's reached the point of the boys for me. But again, I've only seen the first episode. Um, but it's way better than I expected. Um, so far, I'm really, really enjoying um, the characters, um, the takes. And it is doing something a little different than the boys, but uh, very much in the same vein. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm in, and I'm definitely going to continue watching it. And we may even cover it on Panavision. We, we, we intended to, but this season's just been hard for everybody. So, uh, with so much going on. Yeah. I'll do a response here real quickly and just say like, I really, I've enjoyed all the seasons of the boys so far. I've enjoyed all the boys content, even like the little animated spinoff they did with Justin Roiland there. But mm-hmm. I've been surprised by the lack of fanfare for this one. Like, I don't feel like it's really in the zeitgeist. I don't feel like there's been very much promotion about it now that the three episodes are available. I don't really feel like people are talking about it or promoting their reviews or anything like that. So, um, I do want to check these episodes out and check the season out, but um, I don't know. It's it's a little concerning. I hope this, the boys and Amazon isn't losing steam, especially with, you know, Invincible Season 2 around the corner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it, do, it does feel very under-promoted. I will absolutely agree with that. I didn't really even know it was happening until I turned on Amazon and it was like, had already been out for three days. And I was like, oh, yeah. crap. I didn't even hear. Right. Uh, all right. Well, that is all of our news. So uh, let's move. Let's move on and tell everybody where we can find uh, you guys online. Uh, J. Scotty St. Clair, where can they find you online? 
Yeah, you can find me over on Animation Deliberation. That's the podcast that takes action, animation, and cartoons seriously, but not too seriously. And every week, it's myself and my co-host, Suhair Ali, covering a piece of animated content, be it traditional animation, anime, or one of these, you know, animated releases that have been doing so well in the theaters. So if any of that tickles your fancy, join us over on Animation Deliberation, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Um, And Haley Hobbs, where can they find you online? You can find me on Source Pages. We do character deep dives and source material background for geeky TV shows and movies. We just uh, dropped our episode for Loki Season 2. We covered the trials of Loki with our friend Ryan Doze, who's been on this show, who hosts Across the Bifrost, the Mighty Thor podcast. Sweet. And Jay Sisson, where can the people get more Jay Sisson? Well, if you want more Jay Sisson, you can come join me at Commute the Podcast, a weekly educational show that covers three interesting topics in 20 minutes. Just a nice tight package on your way to work. Learn something interesting that you can talk about with uh, people in your life. Sweet. And I am on the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, and the reason I mention it is because Loki Season 2 is starting this week, like Haley mentioned, and we are really pumped about it. Uh, All three of the hosts... uh, me, uh, me, Jeff, and Ashley will all be uh, on every episode is the plan, and we are going to be able to cover it when it drops, watch it, cover it, w- live with everyone at, in prime time. So we're going to be going live on, I think, 9 o'clock Central or so. Um, so, yeah, I'm really pumped to do that uh, with the audience and uh, be able to watch and respond in in real time. We haven't been able to do that. All three of us, I think ever on any show. So uh, really pumped about that. And we will be back very soon with more multiverse news. Peace. You stay classy multiverse.